For today's program, I will dispense with my usual reading of our guests' credits and simply say, welcome to the American Theatre Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing, and it is my great pleasure to spend an hour with one of our few return visitors, Angela Lansbury. (laughs) Hi, Angela. Hi, Howard. Now, I should say, we spoke for this program five years ago, and when we had that conversation... The very end of the interview, which remains available in our archive, we asked, will we see you on stage again? This was 2006. Your response was at the time, I have no idea where it will drop out of the heavens from. The fact is the heavens have dropped three times since then because we saw you a year later in Deuce and then we saw you in Blythe Spirit and then we saw you in Little Night Music. So I'm curious because at the point at which we've spoken to you, you hadn't worked on stage for quite some time. The decision not just to come back once but to start working so steadily again on the stage, how did you come to that? Simply because I was asked and in each instance, uh, there was a certain something about, for instance, Deuce – which was what you might call a two-hander, although there were actually, I think, four other characters who were in the piece. But it was two women sitting on stage talking about their past years together as doubles partners in tennis. It's, it was written by a dear friend who sent it to me in that very special way that authors do. And we should say Terence McNally. Terence McNally, indeed. And I read it, obviously, tilted towards uh, the idea of doing it because I was really taken with the character of uh, Leona and the great Marianne Seldes was going to be working with me in on the piece. So therefore, those were the deciding factors, obviously. Well, let's talk a little more about Deuce because was it that Terence specifically wanted you for that role? Because having seen the show, I almost imagined maybe you and Marion could have done either role. I think you're probably right, uh, although I, I have to say it, it has never occurred to me that we could have. Hmm. I always loved Leona, and I had a lot of thoughts about her when I did play her. I was reminded very much of the governor of Texas, Ann Richards, and I always felt that she had a lot of the qualities that I stole from her to, <laughs> to play <laughs> Leona. <laughs> and uh, when I told Liz Smith that, she said, you're absolutely right. <laughs> and Isn't that curious? Because we do tend to not always but sometimes we'll we'll find some person in in life that we've known or that we've uh, read about or we've watched on television and we will use that as a as a pattern shall we say hmm. uh, to work to fill as as best we can so uh, in that case it was Anne Richards so i i always loved leona i thought she was a tough old broad and i think that i was far more suited to play that role than i would have been to play the other although i would have had a crack at the other too <laughs> well <laughs> You know, we've occasionally had these productions even going back to when I think it was uh, Richard Burton and Peter O'Toole alternated in Beckett. And certainly we've had other examples of that. Um, So it it made me wonder about the choice of the roles. Did Terrence say anything to you specifically about why you – I mean anyone would be lucky to have you in in their plays. But but did he talk to you about anything other than please read it and think about doing it? 
No, I, I, to be truthful, uh, he did not. I think he knew from the onset when we sat around and read the play for the first time in his apartment here in New York City that the piece needed some work. We all sensed that there was an incompleteness uh, uh, to the play that there was something, there was a, what was lacking was a sort of denouement between these two women. You felt that there should have been some secret, some event that took place in their, in their relationship as either tennis players or as women who were married and had, or had lovers or shared lovers or whatever. None of this ever came to the fore. It was never even hinted at. And we were looking for that. We felt that there should have been that. Uh, Terence, and I don't think I'm speaking out of school when I say that was not well at the time. And uh, he was going to go and undergo, undergo a very serious operation. And consequently, he was in no shape to rework the piece. Uh, we were going to do it off Broadway originally, That's right. and I think it should have been primary stages. Should have been done at primary stages, but the word got out, and uh, that uh, yours truly was <laughs> going to have an, uh, you know, have a go at Broadway again after all those years, and they kind of jumped on the wagon and. Uh, I must say that uh, Jeffrey Richards, our producer, uh, was quite marvelous in his uh, uh, the way he. he took care of us and, and the production. And we did all right, but we didn't do as well as we might have done had we had the bit of work that was looked for. So for keeping it off-Broadway had more to do with the time to do the work on the show than it did with, say, the scale of the show itself and, and the right-sized theater for it, in your opinion. I think so. I think it was a small, a small, a small piece, mm-hmm. you know, yes. So – when you went back on the stage, I mean you had done benefit performances. It's not like you had not walked on a stage for for you know 20 years at that point. But to do a run, the show ran you know for a few months and I was just wondering what it was like to get – to use an awful metaphor back in the saddle because people talk about what they need to do to get through eight a week. Well – I think you're looking at somebody who really thrives on order, on repetition actually in my case. I didn't hesitate to do two years, for instance, in MAME or in Sweeney Todd. I think it was a little less than two years of Sweeney Todd but I took it on the road. I mean I did a year at at the – at the, uh, the, uh, the old Eurus, which is, of course, now the no longer the Gersh- is now the Gershwin. And uh, then went to Los Angeles and had long, long – in other words, I was used to doing long runs. Well, you went out and I saw you on tour in Sweeney mm-hmm. Todd. I mean you were out for a while with that. Yes, I was. I was. So, so repetition has never bugged me or bothered me. I've always found something in every performance that I felt – was just a, a fresh impetus to send it across the footlights, to to be that person, to be that character, and that's something that I was blessed with, and uh, it's it's part of my, I'm not going to say my bag of tricks, but uh, in a sense you could call it that because it's there for me, you mm-hmm. know, and uh, it, some people would consider it very boring, but I think uh, most of the actors of the old days is this is what they had. This is, this is what the Lunts had, for instance, and and uh, uh, they love touring. Well, if you love touring, it's because you love going out and 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 
and entertaining that new audience, and it is a new audience every time the curtain goes up. So that's the great thing about theatre. And when it goes up, the stage is yours. So you you could hang an awful lot of uh, things on uh, us people who get out there and do things over and over and over again. Well, one of what the are we looking for? Yeah. One of the things about Deuce was, as I recall, you and Marion spent almost the entire play. 90 seated. minutes. Mm-hmm. You were you were out there all the time, but you didn't have the opportunity. You didn't have the range of motion necessarily that an actor has when they're working on stage. Did that still allow you to find something fresh every time? Well, you do, you do, because after all, we were always very. Our, our attention was on that court in front of us. We were watching that ball. So if our conversation with each other was interrupted, it was always interrupted by what was happening to the ball and to those players on the court. And this always kind of stirred it up. This, this mm. is what kept it kind of buzzing along. And I don't think the audience ever got tired. I think women liked it a lot better than men because men were hoping for a grand slam. You know, they, they wanted something exotic to happen and it doesn't. So from that point of view, it was a it was a downer, and I think that the whole play was a bit of a downer for the reasons that I gave. And mm-hmm. I would say this to Terence. I'm going to ask you one more question about Deuce. You say that you were watching the tennis match in front of you, but that tennis match was in fact the audience. You spent that whole play looking right out at the people watching it. What was that experience? You you really didn't have a chance to turn away, to take a moment, to go off stage. Did you respond at all to the audiences or did you really have to pretend they weren't there? As far as I'm concerned, it's, it's very important to forget the audience is there because that would be very distracting to me as an actress, if I started thinking about the man in the seventh row center or the, or the woman with the big hat, you know, 20th row on the right, because that can be distracting. Hmm. But let's say the, the lighting in most audiences is such that you really can't see. You really cannot. Although I've often played with actors who will say, oh, there's a woman sitting in the front row who's doing that, and I feel like saying, what do you mean? How do you know that? You shouldn't be looking at that woman in the front row. What, what, what are you doing? You should be paying attention to who you are on stage, uh, I would hope, every minute. I sound like a bit of a stickler, but uh, in a sense, I, I haven't got time to wonder about the audience. I'm wondering about what I'm, what I'm thinking about and what I'm telling or what I'm sharing with the other person on stage. And the audience is incidental as far as I'm concerned. I'm not going to play to the audience. You return to Broadway just two years after Deuce, probably a little less uh, in terms of timing, um, month by month, in Blythe Spirit as Madame Arcati. Now, I have to say, you seem to be having a hell of a good time up there. Was it – it seemed so almost improvisational, so uh, of the moment. Were you changing that up every night or were you doing – because I only saw it once or were you always hitting the same marks and having the same moments? Uh, in the main, I was always the same. The only place that I took off was in the séance where I'm looking for the spirits to, to help me to help this little group to solve the problem with the aid of, as I say, the spirits. And her mode of finding them, 
I enjoyed every evening changing it just a little bit. Certainly, uh, there was quite a lot of choreography involved, which was a great deal of fun for me because I love to dance and I love to improvise. And uh, so it was always a little bit different, you know. But <laughs> uh, uh, it did make – it made the cast roar with laughter. It was very naughty in a way, but the audience loved it. And why Absolutely. not? Uh, you know, uh, Madame Akati was a character uh, out of my imagination in this instance. I, I I didn't remember uh, Margaret Rutherford, who'd, who'd been the very, very successful first uh, player in that role. But I, I just felt that uh, I, I could take it, take it to town, you know, and I, so I did. Well, I've seen Madame Arcati played so many different ways. How did you decide to approach her? What would you say was the inner life of your Madame Arcati? A lot of it had to do with my mother's uh, experience with uh, spiritualism. When I was a child, uh, was constantly having seances at the house. Hmm. So uh, there was a lot of seances going on in my young life. Uh, and during that period, my sister and I used to uh, do takeoffs and imitations of some of these uh, meetings and gatherings. And uh, a lot of it had to do with, uh, you know, uh, pushing. Uh, egg cups around a table and that sort of thing. And it was all very, very relaxed and, and easy. But, you know, there were those who believed strongly that when, when the, the egg cup went to A and then went to B and then went to C, it was, it was tapping out a, a message. Well, all, all of those things as a child, you never forget. So you, you use all this. It, memory is wonderful. It gives you the opportunity to, uh, to, to realize and to put again for the first time, for the th- second time, perhaps, a piece of business which you remembered years and years prior, well, you use it. You I, know. I assume this took place in England before you came to New York. You came to New York when you were 14. So indeed, you mm-hmm. were definitely a child. I'm actually a little surprised your mother had you and your sister in the room during th- something like a seance. Well, she, uh, to be honest with her, she didn't have us in the room. <laughs> but uh, she, she loved uh, what we used to call it table tapping, you know. But she, uh, poor darling, she really was very spiritual minded. And uh, it was a, a very upsetting experience for her, actually. And uh, she had a nervous breakdown over it because she was mm. trying to reach her father, who she was very attached to. And when he died, and she just had my twin brothers, Edgar and Bruce, at that time. And uh, she was sort of thrown into an absolute tizzy. It was postpartum. Uh, depression and so mm. on. So uh, anyway, she tried anything, uh, lots of uh, ways of having this person and that person come to the house and talk to her. And it was always about getting in touch with the other side, mm. getting in touch with the other side. So that's really what Madame Arcati is doing, is she's trying to get in touch <laughs> with the other side. How do you do it? Uh, you use every means at your disposal. And uh, hers, because she was interested in the Eastern religions, obviously, because uh, earlier in the play, um, she is noted as having been up on the mountain at one point and, and you know, giving out um, uh, lectures and what have you on, on this and that. So she was a woman of many parts, you mm. know, let's put it that way. She was quite capable of doing all these weird and wonderful things. When you take on a role like Madame Arcati, you've already spoken. I asked you certainly about an inner life. It's very easy to just look at a role like that and just figure out how to make it funny, not to deal with the underpinnings. How much in Blythe Spirit was it your choice to go 
to the memories to that. How much was being brought out by the director to say, you know, go deeper. Don't just make her a funny, dotty old lady. Well, in in this instance, uh, Michael Blakemore never for one minute uh, gave me any indication of how he felt I should play this part. We had probably been rehearsing for two days, and he said to me the second day, he said, Angie, you're on your own. Go for it. (laughs) And for an Englishman to say that. (laughs) Well, he's actually Australian. (laughs) Well, he is Australian, exactly. Have you talked to Michael? Uh, Michael has been a guest on this program. It's been a number of years. He's a delightful man. Well, he's he's a tremendous director. But in terms of – in giving you that kind of liberating freedom, just go Mm -hmm. for it, was that the approach for the whole cast or were they all structured and you got to invent around them? Oh, no, 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 no. I would never do anything on stage to upset. No, no, I didn't didn't mean mean improving, but but even in the rehearsal process, Mm -hmm. was it much more about – to set you off that your spirit was indeed so different than than the rest of the company. Well, it, it, she is. She's written different quotes. She really is. Uh, in uh, everything she has to say, uh, puts her apart from anybody else. I mean, she uh, when she first arrives, she's a, a most riveting character uh, because she doesn't behave. Uh, the way any of the rest of them do. The rest of them are all rather well-behaved and uh, typical kind of county types from uh, those sections of uh, English suburbia, out of suburbia, I would say. And, uh, you know, she she obviously is an oddball and she's introduced to such. I mean, they set – she's very, very well set up in the play. Uh, um, Mr. Considine, uh, you know, says it at the beginning when the other guests are sitting around. He said she's she's a bit of an odd so and so. I forget exa- her, his exact line, uh, but he 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 prepares them for a, for a bit of a shock. And of course, when she blows in, you know, <laughs> which is exactly <laughs> said, I, the way I, I park my bike, you know, et cetera, et cetera, and goes on. She she doesn't disappoint. Let's put it that way. <laughs> and they're absolutely aghast and uh, amazed because that's what that's what Coward wrote. As far as I was concerned, I I I, I really understood who she was. I I like to feel when I'm doing a character, particularly like Madame Agati, that I have a very strong sense and an instinct, let us say. I have an instinct for that character. I I knew women like that. Uh, I, I, you know, if you're an actress and you've acted as many roles as I have, although not as many as some, you observe people. You watch, you listen, you dock it away in your consciousness all the attributes and, and idiosyncratic behavior of people. Mm. And that is what actresses who are character actresses use. This is what we draw on. This is what we bring forth from ourselves. And we use those qualities that we've, we've noticed, that we've seen they're not anything to do with us. They're to do with all of the many, many characters and people and types and look, people who look a certain way or act a certain way or walk a certain way. We, we, we remember it. We do remember it. You've used a phrase that comes up a lot in interviews with you, in conversations you've had or what people say about you, which is character actress. Now, many people – uh, certainly people who are interested in theater think of you as one of the great leading ladies of the stage. Um, you always refer to yourself as a character actress and did 
even from early on in, in your film work and your earliest work on stage. So I'm wondering if you could say how a character actress or actor differs from a star, a leading actor, because it's a distinction that seems to come up so often. Well, I think that great leading ladies generally have great faith in their appearance, in their own personality, and this is what they sell. This is what they use as the foundation for every leading lady character that they play. They very seldom differ. They they very seldom reveal particularly interesting attributes or characteristics. They always maintain, shall we say, a very cool attitude. And that's very confining, what I've just said, because, of course, some great leading ladies were great comedians. Particularly, I'm thinking in motion pictures, not so much in the theater. I think theater leading ladies, generally speaking, would always roughly play the same the same part, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, in movies, not so much. Certainly Davis, uh, Betty Davis, uh, we think of a, a Meryl Streep, great, great Meryl Streep, who is capable of being a great leading lady and also every character you ever thought of under the sun. And uh, then you have Kate Hepburn, but she was always Kate Hepburn. She was always the great leading lady. I was always talking to her like that. So you, you knew exactly what you were going to get, you know. Davis, no, she, she was a fantastic uh, character actress as far as I was concerned, plus being a great leading lady because so, she allowed herself to be, uh, to be dumbed down from a point of view of her looks. She wore terrible outfits sometimes. You know, she, she loved playing characters, she thought. But it was always Betty Davis. So the term character actress doesn't even relate to the scale of the role or the medium. But it seems like it's almost that a willingness to be transformational. I think you've hit it right on the nose there. I think that's what I'm more comfortable not playing myself. I've always thought of myself as a particularly kind of cabbage-like person. Uh, I'm, you, you know, I... I, I like Yes, yes. I've said that about myself for years and years and years. You know, even when I was quite young, <laughs> it was funny. But if I could hide myself in a whole set of clothes, looks, sounds, and everything under the sun, then I became alive because mm. that's what I could do. It begs the inevitable question then. Is there a role you have ever played stage, film, television, that you would say is closest to Angela Lansbury? be awfully hard to find that role. Hmm. I mean, everybody says, well, Mame was your role. That was your great role, wasn't it? I wasn't playing Mame. I was playing Ina Clare. Hmm. So, you know, I, uh, there was always somebody else. And uh, because I've never had the opportunity, you could say, and maybe that's a bit of a thorn in my side that I never have had the opportunity to play the leading lady. Hmm. I really haven't, if you think about it. Just go back over everything I've ever done and uh, that person doesn't exist in... in uh, Certainly not in the conventional way that you've described at all because you've played the leading roles. 
but not as you describe a leading lady where you bring yourself to the part all the time. Mm-hmm. You not only bring the characters you invent, but as you just said, you even bring the person you based it on. Mm-hmm. So let's ask Madame Armfelt. You've reached the point where you've now played two madams uh, in a row on Broadway, but was was there a role model for Madame Armfelt in Little Night Music? No, she was written perfectly. Hmm. Written absolutely to the nines by great Hugh Wheeler. Mm-hmm. And so who is she? Who was she? She was an amalgam of a number of women down through history, you know, of the classics. She really was and uh, beautifully written, funny and caustic and graceful and sad, wonderful uh, facets of in- interesting things to weed out of the every word she said. I, I, I loved playing her. Hmm. I really, really did. And uh, loved singing liaisons because liaisons said it all. What it said was everything about what this woman's life had been in her youth and how it was all gone and no longer existed and uh, the sorrow that she felt when on thinking about it. didn't stop her from being a hellion when it came to you know, ordering people around. But uh, when she thought about herself and thought about her past and her extraordinary uh, out of her, list of uh, suitors that she <laughs> polished off down the line. Suitors is putting it lightly. <laughs> yes, indeed. Politely, I should Kings say. Kings and princes and everything else under the sun, you know. She was just a great call girl. Let's face it. That's hmm. what she was. <laughs> when you were approached to play that part, is it a part you'd ever thought about doing? No, I didn't. In fact, uh, originally uh, – Steve and and I believe Hal too particularly wanted me to play Desiree in the original, in the original production. Hmm. And I was doing Dear World. <laughs> hmm. Yes. So there there you have it. There you have it. Um, I want to talk about something very specific relating to liaisons. I was very fortunate to be at the Olivier Awards this year in London where you performed liaisons. And what struck me was that the performance you gave and the even to a degree the interpretation of what you did when you were playing Madame Armfelt in a wheelchair, in old age makeup versus what you did when you were standing up full figure um, at the Drury Lane was very different. Now, so was that – Thinking about the song differently, that was that – again, I said being freed from the chair as I spoke earlier about Deuce. I'm just just wondering about it because it came – both were wonderful but they were different. Good. I'm glad you, I'm glad you noticed that. Uh, Steve certainly noticed it and uh, one, the orchestra was very slow, uh, much slower than we had played it in the, the show. You're talking about it was slower in London. Uh, no, slower, slower uh, at the uh, Drury Lane. Right, right. It was much slower at Drury Lane, and because we didn't really get to, we, we we rehearsed it, went through it once. Yeah, I mean know. benefits you don't I get mean, a lot of time. No, no, no. Listen, they were marvelous. It was a wonderful sound system. I couldn't, you know. Um, so why was it different? Because I didn't have a stick. I didn't have the wheelchair. Therefore, I had to. Uh, not reduce it, but I, I, I had to rethink it to the, the extent that 
the lyric was all. And I just had to sing the lyric. I, and that's all I did. Hmm. And try to show as much of the lady as possible. I didn't have the wig on. I didn't have the makeup. I didn't have anything. I just had the lyric. You were glamorous that night. <laughs> uh, well, uh, yeah, you're damn right I was because I wasn't going to get up at Drury Lane <laughs> without looking as good as possible. <laughs> I hadn't been, I'd never played that glorious stage, you know. Well, it was very interesting. Something else about that night, and I may have the years wrong, but I believe I read in press coverage that your appearance at the Olivier's was your first time on stage in England in – 20-some-odd years? That is true. Now, you had worked in England. You'd done a Hamlet in the West End. You'd done the Albee all over that for the RSC. That was much, much earlier. For the RSC. That was 72. Right. Mm. But why has your home country not seen you on stage, your original home country, I should say, not seen you as much on stage as we've seen you here? Is a question of nobody asked? Nobody asked in the first place. But in the second place, you have to remember that I took a chunk of time, years, 12 years, 12, 13, 14, 15 years in which I devoted my talents, whatever they are, to television. Why did I do it? Because it represented an annuity. <laughs> and uh, I'm very frank about that. Although... I felt that that was one area that I, I needed to, to win, <laughs> do my best to make it on television. Hmm. So that was the reason I did it. We've been talking about the three shows that you've done since we last spoke. I want to ask you about certain artists that you've had the opportunity to work with, really writers, creators. And I'm just wondering if as I say their names, you could just tell me – a little about the experience of, of each of them. First of all, Stephen Sondheim. You've done three Sondheim shows on Broadway over quite a span of time really because anyone can whistle in the 60s through doing night music just a year or so ago. What's the connection to Sondheim? With Sondheim, because of his unique brilliance, to be asked by Sondheim to appear in to sing along his songs is a challenge, huge challenge, because he is a perfectionist. He hears it. He wants to hear it back. You know what I'm saying? And uh, he's, looking for, he's looking for a certain performance and sound. And if you can give it to him, he's the happiest person in the theater. <laughs> hmm. So – over the time that you did the three different shows, I read you talked about your own approach to singing and things that you learned about singing changed over time. So what were the different qualities between Anyone Can Whistle, Sweeney Todd and Night Music that you had to use to please Stephen Sondheim? Well, certainly uh, Anyone Can Whistle demanded the whole shebang. You know, if you listen to that score – uh, I was singing everything, <laughs> everything, uh, so many songs, the top of my lungs, screaming my way through a great deal of it to my, to my shame and chagrin. I really didn't know how to sing in those days. 
I just got away with it. But in those days, shows were not mic'd the way they are today and simply getting the song across, literally across the footlights into the audience, was a prized skill. It wasn't always about the beauty of the voice. It was about the power of the voice. That's absolutely true. And that worked in this case because she was a, a kind of a dreadful woman, Cora Hoover Hooper, and uh, she wanted what she wanted when she wanted it, and she was a tough broad, you know. So I didn't sing for a year after I did that. Wow. And uh, I just – I thought I've blown it. I have absolutely blown my vocal cords. I hadn't, of course. As it turned out, I started to sing seriously and to, to have some help. And then when I did MAME, which was the next thing I did, and uh, uh, that was when my voice started to find itself. Although we were still working without microphones. Mm -hmm. We were dependent on those foot mics and the the shotguns, and that's all we had. And we were trying to beat our way through the the brass, you know. So when you got to Mrs. Lovett, again, a very different score – from the first Sondheim score you'd done but in a vast house where now miking comes into play. Was that as difficult a part for you to sing? Was it that you'd learned more or was it that he'd written something that was more in your comfort range? I had learned – I had grown vocally. The show that absolutely was my best vocal work was Dear World. Hmm. If If I listen to that recording, I say, good heavens, you really could sing. Oh, dear. And it really makes me laugh, you know, because – and then along comes Sweeney Todd. That required every kind of voice that I have, my uh, low voice, my, my high voice, my soprano voice. And I, I sort of – I just – I loved it. I, I got to do everything that I could do. I could do it by that time. I'd learned how to sing. It took a long time, but I did. I learned how to sing and how to use it and not to be afraid and to go for it. Hmm. <laughs> Well, you mentioned Dear World. You say you know that may have been your best vocal performance mm-hmm. or at least to date at that point. Um, tell me about Jerry Herman because you've done several Jerry Herman shows. Jerry is a composer that if he believes in you, he's going to do everything in his power to make you comfortable and to give you uh, the, the music and the lyrics that you're going to bring off the page best. You know, he'll, he'll always work with you. We, we had our, shall we say, our disagreements about very few, very few things. Uh, I didn't care for the lyric of Dear World. Uh, I felt it was, it was, I don't know. It, anyway, I, but Jerry knows this. Incidentally, and this is off the board, he's doing a new version of Dear World and hmm. uh, he's changing that lyric and giving it to somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> so he took your note all these he years did, later. Actually, yes. <laughs> but in terms of you, you say Dear World, certainly MAME, as mm. you commented earlier, many people feel you know that was the role. Mm. I didn't see MAME. So for mm. me, it is mm. Mrs. Lovett. Mm. But that's you know a matter of, of what you see when. Was there something that Jerry had written in MAME that you think really – you could really grab onto and – Several things. He wrote some wonderful, wonderful songs in that show. Uh, if He Walked Into My Life is one of the great, 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 you know, 
torch songs for a lost son. What more could you ask for? And, uh, you, you know, it requires a great deal of emotion, uh, except that emotion must not interfere with your voice. So all of these things have to be taken into consideration. But as an actress, uh, I've often said that uh, I could sing it within the context of the play. I could never sing it, just stand up. I couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. It well, would break me up. Hmm. Interesting. Two more artists I want to ask you about. I mentioned earlier all over uh, Edward Albee's play at the RSC and you also did the world premiere of two of Edward One Acts at Hartford Stage in 77, plays that had originally been written for the radio. With Maureen Anderman and Bill Prince, yes. Edward Albee is an exacting man about how his work should be done. You said this about Sondheim. So I'm wondering what appealed to you in those Albee works, Albee works. Well, Albee let you get on with it. Uh, he's cast you because he knows you can do it. Otherwise, you wouldn't be there. Hmm. Um, he does. He, he directs if you ask him to, but he does not require you to necessarily take his direction. I mean, if, if you ask him what something means, Edward will say, well, what does it mean to you? Hmm. What do you think it means? That's his trade re response to what does this mean? Well, what, what do you think it means? Right? What do I think it means? Well, I think it means such and such and so. Well, all right. Well, all right. And you can just go with it? Yes. Is that something you enjoy as a performer or is that something that at times you may say, this is what I think, but what if the other people are thinking something else? Well, uh, that's for you to try and for them to find out. I mean, I, I don't know what the answer to that is. Mm. I've never worked with a director who really said it's this, this, and this. The only time that ever happened to me was particularly in a play called A Taste of Honey mm. with uh, Joan Plowright, which was directed, strangely enough, by uh, Tony Richardson. But it was uh, first directed because he was busy doing a movie at the time at 20th Century Fox. So we were directed... Uh, in Los Angeles by George Devine, who was an, a, a man who came out of the London Theatre Studio, which was Michel Saint-Denis uh, School of Training in London. And he had also directed a great deal at the Old Vic. And he was a wonderful director. He was a director. You longed for him to give you direction because you knew that his take on something on a line or a, on a scene was absolutely smack on. You see, when you get a director like that, you're with your tongue hanging out for them to work with you. Very few directors will do this. Hmm. They wait for you to do it. They wait to see what you do. If they don't agree with you, then I've never had a director say to me, "What are you doing? What are you? Wh why are you? Wh why are you making that choice?" You know, uh, I've never, never had that experience. Hmm. I don't know whether I'd like it. I might give, might hit them. <laughs> but you know what I mean. Another artist I want to ask you about is Arthur Lawrence, who, of course, we lost very recently. Arthur, who I did not know, was often spoken of as a man of strong opinions and certainly strong opinions about works that he had written as well as directed. What was your experience working with Arthur Lawrence? Well, the first time I worked with Arthur Lawrence, I had to give him credit for giving me the part in the first place, which was in Anyone Can Whistle, for which he wrote the book. He 
really wanted me to play it like a gauleiter, you know. He really wanted me to play it really like one of these awful women who made lampshades out of human skin. Huh. Yeah, really. And I refused to do it. I said, I'm not going to play it that way. You've got to believe me that it, it, it's not going to happen. If you, that's what you want, you've got the wrong kiddo here. You know. So he finally settled down and uh, we managed to to make it through <laughs> nine performances. Okay. Well, it, well, you made it through nine performances, but you just used the word he managed to settle down in re- regards to a director. So then – when you did Gypsy, first in the West End, do I remember correctly he directed you in that production? Absolutely. So, and I was all against it. I said, I, I, if I'm going to be directed by Arthur Lawrence, I don't think you want me to play <laughs> Gypsy. <laughs> so what changed your mind? Persuasion. Persuasion on the part of uh, Julie. Julie, uh, Julie Stein. Julie Stein and Stephen and the producers, the young, wonderful producers who had come right off of Follies and were full of beans and dying to do Gypsy, and that was uh, Barry Brown and Fritz Holt. Mm-hmm. And uh, the two of them had, uh, had asked me a year earlier to do it with them in London, and I had said, no, I, I can't do this. I don't believe that I can play a role that, uh, you know, the great Merman made her name and made an enormous dent in the musical theater with, I don't think I can do this. It's not my cup of tea. And was that really the first major revival of it at that point? Because the show, I think, is 59 originally and we're talking about uh, 73. Uh, yes, you're quite right. It was 73 in London, 74 in New York. But uh, it was 72 when they first came to me mm-hmm. and uh, a year went by and then finally they came back and I think Arthur wrote to me and that was probably the, the deciding factor. His, his attitude, his argument in favor of me doing it was so strong. He said, I want you to play Rose. I don't want you to just sing Rose. I want you to play this woman. And you can do it. Mm. And that gave me tremendous confidence. Then uh, Julie obviously had second thoughts. He wanted a big singer. I didn't blame him for that. But by that time, because by now I had done Dear World, so certainly my voice was much, much stronger, I I decided to have a crack. So I did. Mm. And uh, it, it did work. It worked in London and uh, it worked in New York. So – I had two good, great years playing Rose. I found something interesting in a comment you'd made in one interview where you said you thought Rose was a stupid woman. Yes, I did. I said she was a stupid woman because she didn't recognize the fact that she couldn't use her children like puppets and the fact that she was prepared to put them through hell for just to gratify her own desires, which were for success, for recognition, and so on. She, I thought, was stupid because she didn't, you know, she never considered that fact. Mm -hmm. Now, we've been talking a lot about musicals, the exception really of of the Albee plays. I want to ask you, and didn't get the chance last time we spoke, about doing Hamlet. Um, You'd... Albert Finney is Hamlet. 
your Gertrude, his mother, nowhere in your resume did I see Shakespeare plays or movies or radio plays or anything. So to go to London, your second production there, to play a major role in Shakespeare, what was that like for you? That was daunting, very I was really worried why I was going to be playing at the Old Vic. I was going to be playing A with uh, Albie Finney. I was going to be directed by Sir Peter Hall, who at that time was numero uno, directing ranks, and uh, I was going to be judged by the English critics. Now, <laughs> unfortunately, and I, I'm defending myself here, this production was the most Anglo-Saxon Root, sort of ground-rooted production of Hamlet that you could possibly imagine. I don't know what that means. Well, Help it me means understand. that that uh, Albert is not your average Hamlet. We were the, – the whole production design was by John Bury who uh, at that time for reasons of his own decided he was going to make everybody sort of outsize. The men clomped around in what looked like uh, – kind of paratroopers' outfits, heavy boots. There was nothing graceful or, uh, you, you know, it, it was just everybody's sort of nightmare of a Hamlet. And I was no, was no exception. I kind of got fatter and fatter with, with ennui at playing the role because we never, ever, we, we never managed to rehearse the closet scene. Now, what would you say is the most riveting, one of the most riveting moments in, in Hamlet is the scene between Hamlet and his mother. We never rehearsed it. And consequently, I, I sort of came off as this awful sort of mewling, puking woman who never stopped crying, which isn't my speed at all. And uh, we, we, there, was, there, was no, there was no electricity, there was no there was sex, there was nothing. It was just complete dud. So, I mean, when the, the British critics, <laughs> they were kind. They, You know, I mean, they didn't lambaste me, but they could have done. I was hmm. really ashamed of the whole thing. Not wow. the production because, uh, after all, it, it, it ran for a long time and, uh, you know, the rest of the cast were managed. There were some great old actors in it. I can't remember the name of the one great one who played Polonius. And uh, it was... But it was, as I say, it was a square production, very square, hmm. yes. Interesting. Mm -hmm. And no temptation, obviously, to run back to Shakespeare again in the ensuing 30-plus years. No, all I can tell you is that the first Shakespearean role I played, and the, and, and the Queen was the last, was Audrey in As You Like It. Now, doesn't that tell you something? Where did you do that? Oh, at dr dramatic school in London, at the, yes, Weber <laughs> Douglas. Hmm. Well... Since you bring up dramatic school, as I said earlier, you came over here when you were 14. The war had broken out. Mm -hmm. You'd already been taking dramatic classes. Mm -hmm. Your mother, we should explain, was an actress, well-known working actress. And then you came over here and we'll just acknowledge that the American Theatre Wing gave you a scholarship to go to, uh, to an acting school. Um, but you didn't – it's not like nowadays where people go through an undergraduate program, maybe an undergraduate and a graduate program or they've gone to Juilliard. These were you – know, you were young by the time you finished even this schooling. Um, 
And now I know you like to speak very much about the importance of training. So tell me about the training that you got first. What what was the grounding that you had? The grounding in the first place, let's, let's talk about the school in London first and foremost because that's – I did go there from the age of 13 until I was 14. So mm-hmm. I went there for a year okay. and during, the, during that uh, period, I uh, was a day pupil. That's – we all were. We were all day pupils. What did they concentrate on during that first year? Voice, breath control, movement and that was really about it. Diction, yes, that was something that uh, we really didn't pay attention to when I came over to New York, but we did continue with voice production. Yes, that was the New York thing. Now, I must say that uh, in the school curriculum in New York, we did plays, we did scenes from the very onset of our training the first year. We never just sort of sat around, you know, taking classes and this, taking classes and that. We did a lot of uh, theater history. Yes, we did, which was useful but uh, forgettable, unfortunately. We read a lot of plays and uh, that was that was very helpful. But the, I have to say this right now. The whole chances for a young theater student in New York in the 1940s was light years away from what it is today. And the reason is that we did productions. We did our senior production at the Heckscher Theater here in New York City. Um, and we, and all the agents in New York came to see us. All the casting directors, because they knew that maybe somewhere in that bunch of youngsters was a pearl. And they would pluck that one out, have them come to their office, and then take that one under their wing, take them around. They would put them up for roles. And that was the way a young actress who had any talent, you know, got her first break. I was picked up by three, you know, mm. great big agents, MCA <laughs> and uh, Liebling and Wood, you know, all the great agents of that time. So your chances were far greater then than they are now. Mm. I wish it wasn't true, but it is. And we talked about this the last time we spoke. You ended up going out to California. Your mother had gone out there and you really got your big break in film. Even with with those agents discovering Mm -hmm. you, it's not as if you suddenly landed yourself major or even minor stage roles. No, I didn't. Because you were out working in a department store in Los Angeles. Had to make a living. We all have to do those things. And I was no exception and my mother worked – had to also work for a living. She couldn't get jobs either because she was an English woman and she'd come out and uh, she'd come across the country on tour with the Canadian RAF. She was raising money for the uh, Canadian RAF. So we both ended up in Los Angeles with, with nothing really, very, very, very little. But uh, thank goodness, you know, a, a break. You get a break. This is – the lovely thing about life sometimes. Hmm. Over the years, as your career has grown and expanded in all of the medium, you've had an opportunity to work with and watch young actors coming up in the business. You speak about the importance of your training. Do you feel that 
the young actors you come across now or aspiring actors who may cross your path have the same strong basis that you did when you were coming up? No, I don't think they do for a minute. I think that they grow up with a whole different set of aims to go for. The fame and success and attention are the things they're looking for right off the bat so often and they're not prepared. Now, I'm not talking about all young students because there are very many that are very earnest and they know what they've, if they have talent, what they need to do to build that talent into a, a movable feast and play all, do all the things that they would want to do as an actor or an actress. But there are so many different categories of, of youngsters who want to be into acting, as some of them say. They have got to learn to, to talk, first of all. They have to learn so much. Oh, my goodness. Some of them are naturals, you know, but we see all these programs all over television, you know, and you, 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 can, you can understand. Everybody thinks they can do it. So how are they ever going to find out if they can do it? Is it going to be a drama teacher in high school? Are there drama classes in high school anymore? I sort of tend to think there aren't, but I hope I'm wrong. I think many, many schools have them, but I know a great many don't. Well, there are funding problems now and unfortunately it's the arts that are often the first to go. I know. I have, I have seen that one of the great, great pluses in some schools is the introduction of, of dance for youngsters. I'm a great exponent mm. of that. I think that's a marvelous way for youngsters to feel the freedom of, of sort of finding some outlet for their, for their dramatic energy and they all have it. It's extraordinary how little children, uh, we've seen that with these wonderful little productions of Into the, Into the Woods, for instance. I mean, Stephen's wonderful, wonderful play. Uh, children are doing it all over the country and that's it's so exciting to see that. And to see them able to learn those very complex lyrics, you know, I know a lot of little girls who are <laughs> playing Red Riding Hood, you know, and they love it and they take it terribly seriously. Well, they're beginning, so they're on the right track. But it's these 13 and 14-year-olds who haven't done anything up till now who suddenly want success, you know, and uh, they, want, they want to be counted. They want to be well, out is it there the doing success it. success or is it celebrity? Well, yeah, you're, you put the right word on it. It's celebrity. They're looking for celebrity. Yes. Hmm. So we, you know, we we're in different camps here to a great extent. Hmm. But I know because I've talked to a great many young students, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen year olds who have attended some of the great schools of, of, of drama and the arts. They are so serious about what they're doing. And they, they come to me and they talk to me and they say, you, your uh, performance in Sweeney Todd, and that's the only thing that any of them have ever seen me in, you know, uh, sent me running into the theater. This is what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And they're serious about it. And uh, I, I understand that. And I love that. I mean, I love the fact that I might have been, the, you know, the reason that they went into the theater. I just hope to God they can hang in long enough to make it. Mm-hmm. I'm going to conclude this interview with the same question I asked you five years ago. 
will we see you on stage again? Yes. And is there anything you can tell us about even how soon we might see you? Early next year. Okay. That's all you're giving us. And I do want to ask because you you recently spoke, gave an interview when you were over in England, still talking about how much you'd like to play and specifically play the Haymarket. Does that opportunity look like it may still happen? Do you still think you may play the Haymarket? And I think that's because that's where your mother once played. Was that yeah. – The reason I wanted to play the Haymarket, the Theatre Royal Haymarket is a jewel of a theatre. And I, I was there a few weeks ago. I went to see the the, the play that was uh, uh, playing there, which was uh, Flare Path. Which is terrific. Which is terrific. Wonderful play done in the style of the 1940s. Now, you've got to have training to know how to do that. And every single one of those actors knew how to do that. Yeah. I was very impressed with it. So, so, But you still have dreams that you will play the Haymarket and we will see you on Broadway again? They're not as strong as they were. When I had a great role, like if I could have played Madame Akati there, it would have been absolutely perfect. Mm. And we just couldn't make that work at that time. But um, if I could have done that there, I would love to have done that. Hmm. I'd love to have played Akati at the Theatre Royal, yeah. Well, it was a thrill five years ago. It is no less of a thrill today to sit and spend an hour with you. Angela Lansbury, thank you so much for being a guest oh, on Downstairs Center. I must thank you. You really gave some very, very good questions and you led me through a, a long, long career, nearly 70 years. Well, <laughs> and a wonderful one. Well, thank you. Thank you. Our engineer for this Downstage Center program is Tim Whitney. Our researcher is Craig Thompson. Our director of web development is Rob Perry. And our producer is Gail Yankosik. Downstage Center is recorded in the CUNY TV radio studio at the City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism in Manhattan. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing, including our previous hour with Angela Lansbury, is available online, on demand, for free from AmericanTheaterWing.org. You can follow ATW on Twitter at The Wing and follow me as well on Twitter as H.E. Sherman. You can also declare yourself as one of our fans on Facebook at The American Theatre Wing and be sure to check out our YouTube channel. If you're a regular listener to or viewer of Wing programs, please remember that we are a not-for-profit organization and consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit our website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center and the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening, and no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theater.